Unless otherwise indicated, Ratchet Book Club is intended for a mature audience. Viewer discretion is greatly advised. Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek, and really, isn't that fucking fantastic? I mean, who the fuck else would you want reading this shit to you? Be honest. LeVar Burton? Yeah, I can see that shit. That nigga's legendary. Morgan Freeman? He's got the voice. Okay, cool, cool, cool. But who else? Who else is bringing y'all this real shit every single goddamn day except for weekends? Because fuck you niggas, only Jesus does that. Who else is bringing you this shit? It's just me, myself, and I, unless the feds ask you. At which point, hella niggas been doing this and you don't know what my show's about. 916-633-1537, Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook, and also Jaquavius and Ashley. Like I said, them niggas are way too good at thinking of ways to torture people, so do not tell them where I live. Chapter 10. David picked up Naya early in the evening to join him for dinner at Franklin Bennett's house. They never say Franklin and Ruby Bennett's house. They never say Ruby Bennett. They just say it's Franklin's house. I guess, you know, like, maybe it's because David is friends with Franklin, but I thought that, you know, both of them had that connection. He had not discussed his visit to Pearl with anyone. But when Naya got into the Pathfinder, looking fresh and lovely in khaki shorts and a red blouse, the words burst out of him. I saw Pearl today. Naya smiled hesitantly. What did she say? David told her everything. It felt good to share the experience with her. Allowing the words to flow out of him cleansed him, clarified his thoughts. That's deep, Naya said when he had finished. I can't believe your father felt that by neglecting you all your life, he prepared you for whatever's going to happen. It's twisted, he said, his self-centered excuse to justify himself. Although, in a way, he might be right. How so? Growing up without my dad forced me to learn a lot when I was a kid. I had to learn how to fend for myself, think through things, set goals, and take risks. My mom was supportive, but she couldn't teach me everything, especially about how to be a man. I had to learn a lot on my own. It made me self-reliant, and maybe I'll need that in order to do, well, whatever I'm supposed to do. I see your point, she said. But think of how much stronger you might be if your father had been there for you. Honestly, I think my dad knew he wouldn't make a good father. He was too self-centered to take care of a family. 
It's better to have no dad around than to have a dad in the house who makes your life a living hell. Message. Good point, she nodded. But what I want to know is, what are you supposed to prepare for? What's going to happen? Pearl just wouldn't say. Claimed she didn't know. He patted the illustrated Bible that lay beside him on the seat. I'm hoping that when we see Franklin tonight, he can help me piece together some things. He's a big history buff, you know. Too bad he won't be able to help me too. What's wrong? Remember that guy who stalked me in Houston? Morgan? I think he's out of jail. He called me twice. You're kidding. Her eyes were haunted. He said that he knows where I live. Damn, David said. You think he really does? Maybe he was only trying to scare you. He found my phone number, which is unlisted. Why not my address? Have you called the police? What could I tell him? I can't prove that he's the one who called me. I don't have any solid proof of anything. Not yet. There has to be something that we can do. He guided the SUV across the road. The Bennett's house was ahead. Since I lived across the street from him, he parked in his own driveway. I could stay with you. Let you protect me. She smiled. Okay, that was a joke. Good to see you're keeping your sense of humor. If I didn't, I'd scream. Seriously? I don't know what I'm going to do, David. This guy scares the shit out of me. Okay. What I need y'all to do while you're listening to this right now is literally tweet me right the fuck now if you know somebody who got so scared they shit on themselves. I know people who will laugh so hard they peed their pants. I do know those motherfuckers and that shit was phenomenally gross. Because they were an adult and they just sank to the floor and pissed. And they did it so much that you knew it wasn't their first time at the fucking rodeo. And they should get that shit checked out. It depends. You know, like the diapers. Okay, that was a joke. But never seen somebody so scared. And I'm... Jump scares. Not my cup of tea. Hate the fuck out of them. Niggas walk up on me. I might stab you. Hate the fuck out of them. Not niggas. Being scared. White people do not get encouraged. I've never been so scared though that I shit on myself. I never even farted when I was scared. When I get scared, two things happen. I'm either going to punch you or I'm going to run. I'm not going to sit there and be like, oh my God. Oh. Oh. Mm. Mm. You smell that? Mm. That's corn. I'm not going to do that. Never heard of anybody actually getting the shit scared out of them. Like if somebody pulls a gun on you, I heard that you like, there's this song by this group called, um, dead press. Their name was dead press. Uh, they made a song, uh, called hell. Yeah. Pimp the system. And at one point they're talking about how they pulled out a gun on a pizza delivery man. And the pizza delivery man, by the look on his face, he probably shit it in his clothes. You know what this is. is a stick-up. But um, I don't think that'll ever happen. And I don't think it's something I can Google. I feel like if I Googled that, I would get flagged immediately. 
So if you know somebody again who got the shit literally if you get the shit if you get the shit scared out of you, god damn it, you if somebody gives you shit, you better you better use that shit as a weapon. Mm, 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 mm. Throw the shit in their face. They will literally run away from you if you start throwing shit at them. I am perfectly confident that if a person came up to me with a gun and I shit on myself and I reached down in my pants and grabbed that shit and threw it at them. (laughs) He took her hand in his. I won't let anything happen to you. I'm not the only one dealing with drama here. What if something happens to you? She had him on that one. His own situation was as bad as hers. Perhaps more so, because it was deeply strange and disturbing. He couldn't bear to think about it any longer. He kissed her quickly on the lips. Come on, Naya. Let's go eat. At Franklin's house, they had dinner. A garden salad, grilled ribeye steaks, baked potatoes, and corn on the cob. They took their meal outdoors on the wooden deck, sitting on wicker patio furniture. The evening saw a welcome decrease in the temperature and humidity that had tormented them all day. A refreshing breeze carried the robust scent of freshly mown grass mingled with the aroma of Ruby's flower garden. A couple of torches designed to repel insects burned on the patio railing. Although Franklin and Ruby were nearly 40 years older than David and Naya, David didn't perceive any of the awkwardness that sometimes stifled discussions between members of different generations. Their conversation flowed, touching myriad subjects, current events, politics, sports, movies, music, travel, and more. The Bennets had not settled quietly into their golden years and allowed themselves to be cut off from the outside world. They were active and well-read, frequent travelers, and full of fascinating insights. After dinner, Ruby served red velvet cake and smooth Jamaican coffee. Both were delicious. David sipped the pungent java, then said, Franklin, when I first moved here, you promised to teach me about the town's colorful history. I've been waiting for my lesson. Oh, you done done it, David. Ruby made a mock grimace. Don't get Professor Bennett started. The young man desires instruction, Franklin said. Do not rebuke the curious mind. I'm curious, too. Naya placed her fork on her plate. I've lived here my whole life, but everything I know about the towns come from hearsay and gossip. Which, interestingly enough, often contains kernels of truth, Franklin said. He cleared his throat. Any discussion about this town must begin with its founder, Edward Mason. You told me a little about him before, David said. He started a plantation here. Correct, Franklin said. Edward Mason moved here from Virginia in 1841. His vision was to establish the grandest, most prosperous plantation in Mississippi. A cotton kingdom, if you will. He had a stately mansion built on a hill that overlooked a thousand acres under his dominion. He owned 300 slaves to work the land from dawn till dusk. Mason was a strict, cruel master. He had slaves beaten severely for minor infractions. Resting a minute too long, arriving late to work, tarrying too long when drinking water or eating. A slave was killed if he violated Mason's code one too many times. 
Mason believed that disobedience was inimical to his mission to maintain a plantation that functioned with machine-like efficiency. How the fuck he know about ma- Well, I guess there were machines back then. I guess, in 1841. I'm really trying to think of what machines were there. Coffee press? In the beginning, his punishments were fairly standard, as such things were on plantations. Lashes with a whip. In time, however, he grew more sadistic and imaginative in his tortures. He once had a disobedient slave tied to the hindquarters of a horse and dragged throughout the countryside. On another occasion, he doused a man in kerosene and set him aflame. Then he had a woman hung from a tree by her ankles and left her there for days. Another time, a teenage slave had fresh meat hung around his neck and waist and was forced into a pen of dogs. In 1861, the Civil War broke out. Edward Mason had no intention of surrendering to Union troops or perishing at their hands. He quickly made special preparations. He already had a mausoleum built at a cemetery, especially for his family. Well, now he had a concealed passage built into the crypt. The passage led to a deep shaft that gave access to an underground hideaway. His plan was to seek refuge there whenever Union soldiers approached. Alas, Mason never had the opportunity to use his hideout. His slaves, emboldened at the idea of a war that would end slavery and hearing accounts of slaves escaping bondage to fight for the Union, launched an insurrection. They set the plantation on fire, and they hung Edward Mason from a tree that still stands to this day in the front yard of Jubilee. Many of the slaves were killed in the uprising, but a few of them escaped and crossed the lines to fight for the Union. My great-grandfather was one of them. Amazing. David shook his head, and Nia looked equally astonished. Is that how you know so much about the history of Edward Mason? My great-grandfather was a member of the inner circle of slaves who worked in the Mason household, Franklin said. His name was Samuel Bennett. Sam was a house nigger, reviled by the slaves who worked in the fields, for they assumed that his lot was better than theirs, his burden easier to bear. In truth, Mason treated the house slaves worse than he treated anyone else, and subjected them to brutalities that I cannot even tell you. When the insurrection hit, Sam was the one who tightened the noose around Mason's neck. Jesus, Nia said. Sam told the story to his son, who in turn told his son, and so it was passed down, eventually falling to me, Franklin said. I verified virtually every detail of which my ancestors spoke. For instance, the mausoleum the Mason had constructed stands in Hillside Cemetery, just off Main Street. I have not, however, ventured inside to find the subterranean hideaway. Edward Mason's corpse, ravaged as it was, was interred in his tomb, and his family lies with him. In addition, many of the survivors of the slaves who worked on the Mason plantation presently live in Dark Corner. Our chief, Van Jackson, is the descendant of a slave who escaped with my great-grandfather. Naya, your late father, Thomas James, was another descendant. I remember Daddy telling me, Naya said, wonder in her eyes. Franklin nodded. David, you too have an ancestor who played a role as well, William Hunter. I remember hearing stories about him as a kid, David said. He was some kind of freedom fighter, right? 
Yes, Franklin said. William Hunter was a free man who roamed throughout the South. He frequently assisted slaves in fleeing north on the Underground Railroad. Although he was free himself, he helped to plan the insurrection at the Mason Plantation. According to Sam, my great-grandfather, William Hunter was the bravest and most cunning man he had ever seen. Sam believed that Hunter had witnessed something as a younger man that gave him the fortitude of ten men. But Hunter was secretive about his past. I don't know much about him either, David said. I never learned much about my father's side of the family. Mostly everything you've said is new to me. Doubtless, the ghost stories would be as well, Franklin said. David's heart skipped a beat. Naya shifted in her chair. Ruby watched her husband thoughtfully. Ah, your reactions tell me that you're more than passingly aware of the ghost stories connected to Jubilee, Franklin said. Since the slave revolt, people have reported stories of hauntings at the estate. Some claim to see apparitions of slaves huddled under the trees that surround the house. Others say that they have seen the ghost of Edward Mason himself, floating through rooms in a dark suit, his face blue and eyes bulging, presumably from his death due to hanging. David reached under the table and found Naya's hand. She squeezed his, gratefully. The house has been vacant for most of the 140-odd years that Edward Mason has been dead. On rare occasion, someone will move in and attempt to refurbish the estate. I recall an ambitious couple who wanted to restore the mansion's period detail and turn it into a tourist attraction. They lived there for only a month and left in haste. The restoration project abandoned. Jubilee has been perhaps the one constant in Dark Corner. Throughout World Wars, Jim Crow, the booms and busts of the economy, the Civil Rights Movement, and so on, up to the present day, the mansion has stood inviolate, an unchanging landmark. Townsfolk despise what the house represents, and they fear the ghost stories. But in spite of that, we've let it stand. A bit like a scar that serves as a reminder of a fight that we've won. You can only understand how far you've come when you understand that from which you've came. Someone's living in Jubilee now, David said, thinking of the tall man dressed in black whom he had seen a few days ago. I visited the house. Franklin put his coffee mug on the table. May I ask why? I need to tell you about this. David looked around the table at his friends. They watched him expectantly. I saw a ghost a few days ago. It was my grandfather. Lord have mercy, Ruby said. There's much more, David said. He told them everything. It requires a leap of imagination to believe that your father's death was a hoax, Franklin said. He stared thoughtfully into his mug. Possible, I suppose. It will be terrible if it's true, Ruby said. All the pain he's caused so many folks, especially you. She touched David's arm. Well, it's only a theory, David said. I don't have any solid proof, but I do have some evidence of the other stuff I mentioned. He unzipped the backpack that had been lying beside him on the deck. He pulled out the old Bible and handed it to Franklin. Ah, yes, this is an artifact. Franklin carefully opened the Bible. 
The illustrations were done by my great-grandfather, James Hunter, David said. He was an artist, but you probably already knew that. But I never realized he did work like this. Franklin pushed up his glasses on his nose, leaned closer to the book. My God. What is it? Naya said. Franklin put the Bible in the center of the table. It was open to one of the drawings David had seen before. A pack of dogs guarding the mouth of a cave, and a group of men nearby, crouched amidst some trees. Franklin's eyes were bright. The young man who cuts my grass, Junior. He was recently asked to do some work at a cave in this very town, by the man who moved in the Jubilee. Digging. Junior and his cousin did the work late at night, about a week ago. They sought a stout, bald-headed man who had requested their assistance, and a tall man dressed in black. The guy who wears black is the same man I saw when I visited the Mason place, David said. There was something strange about him, too. He seemed a lot older than he looked. Franklin nodded. After Junior and his cousin finished the work of breaking a passage into the cave, they were dismissed. However, being curious, they peeked inside. Junior claims that he saw a heap of skeletons with rags clinging to their bones. And the man in black saw Junior and his cousin and, well, used a supernatural force to throw them against the wall. Okay, Naya said. Now you're creeping me out. Me too, Ruby said. David, too, felt a cool dampness at the nape of his neck. That's what Junior told me, Franklin said. He's a simple man, without guile. I wasn't completely convinced of his story, of course. But David, you confirmed the existence of the mysterious character in black. Also, these depictions of the cave are highly suggestive. It must be the same one. Only fools believe in coincidence. But those drawings must have been done decades ago, David said. Indeed. Franklin Page to another illustration. This one showed men inside a cavern, facing a legion of savages. What does it all mean, Naya said. Can you figure it out, Franklin? Franklin contemplated the Bible, silent. Around the table, David, Naya, and Ruby anxiously awaited his response. Franklin's head snapped up. He pointed at David. You are being summoned to perform a task, David. A task that deals with this. He tapped his finger against the sketch. This is your family history here, lucidly portrayed. How do you know it's my family history? What if it's a bunch of drawings from some fable, some tall tale? No, no, no! Franklin hammered his fist against the table. This is history here. I can feel it in my old bones. Your great-grandfather was almost certainly telling a visual story of an episode from Hunter family lore. But what am I supposed to do, David said. That's what I can't figure out. Whatever is required of you, which will become clear in time as Prol advised, Franklin said. He looked at each of them, somber. Let's not lie to ourselves. We're facing something unearthly. Stop it, Franklin, Ruby said. You don't know that yet. I know what I feel, and I have an inkling of what David is feeling. He's seeing ghosts. Psychics are relaying messages to him. I doubt that he's being prompted to perform a task as mundane as replacing the plumbing in the Hunter residence. 
His mission is obviously as strange as the signs that he's received thus far. It only makes sense. David had a chunk of red velvet cake remaining on his plate. And the coffee was still warm, but his appetite was gone. Franklin, as he had hoped and feared, had confirmed in no uncertain terms that a grave responsibility awaited him. And he had made their next step clear, too. Nevertheless, David asked, What should we do? I believe you know the answer to your question, Franklin said. My friends, we're going to embark on a field trip tomorrow. To the cave. Shanice Stevens loved the night. As a child, she loved to sit on the porch with her mother and gaze at the stars that were scattered like diamonds across the sky. The stars are God's eyes, sugar, her mother would say. He's always watching you to make sure you're safe. When she grew older, her love of nightfall and silvery moon stayed with her. She especially loved night in Mississippi. There, the darkness seemed purer, deeper. Without the harsh lights of a big city, like Memphis, where she attended college, washing out the gloom, she could soak up the blackness as though it were water, and she was a sponge, letting it fill her up with tranquility. Perhaps the only thing more comforting than the night was her boyfriend, Trey. His presence soothed her, no matter the time of day. They were at a park, sitting on the cool hood of Trey's car. They sipped a chilled, peach-flavored wine from plastic glasses, the half-full bottle propped between them. She was a junior at the University of Memphis and had come home to Mason's Corner for the summer. Trey, a grad student at the same school, drove from the city every weekend to visit her. They spent many nights like this, sitting outside talking, sometimes sipping a sweet wine and listening to soulful music. They had been dating for almost a year, and Shanice was sure that they would marry after she graduated. Trey was the kind of man who was all about business and knew what he wanted out of life. She was a free spirit, a good balance for him. They complimented each other. That's the same with my wife and I. This is just me breaking in. She's the more about the business, knowing exactly what she wants, um, teacher, sort of. And I'm a free spirit. Like, I jump from idea to idea, and I do fucking great at all of them, but I jump from idea to idea. And so we round each other out very well. Like, she keeps me level, and I keep her floating. Sexually. I shouldn't have said that out loud. It It is that too, though. But honestly, we, to be able to compliment your significant other, not just with words, but with your presence, is a gift that I don't know if a lot of people have, because I don't know if a lot of people are looking for that in a relationship. But I mean, what do I know? Most people probably are looking for that and just look at the wrong things. Fuck it. On the car stereo, a sensual Maxwell ballad came on. Lifetime. Oh, I love this song, Shanice said. She leaned in the tray. He drew her closer, kissed her cheek. That brother Maxwell can sing, Trey said. He can represent for brothers like me, because you know I can't sing a lick. Why don't you try, she said. Sing a verse for me, sweetie. Girl, please. It's only the two of us out here. 
Sing for me, please? She batted her eyelashes, which always made him melt like chocolate in her hands. He opened his mouth and was about to sing a note. Then he paused. Look over there. Swaying to the music, she turned. A large dog stood in the corner of the parking lot, revealed in the dim, yellow-orange light cast by a nearby street lamp. The oddly quiet canine watched him with glimmering eyes. I think it's a pit bull. Trey's voice held a trace of anxiety. Yeah, it does look like a pit, she said. Why is it staring at us like that? Pit bulls terrified her. Those dogs were murder machines. When she was in high school, her neighbor owned a pit bull. And once, the dog had gotten loose and locked his teeth onto the leg of the postman, Mr. Jones. They had to literally crack the dog's skull in order to get it to release its grip on the poor guy. Mr. Jones required 50 stitches and had walked with a limp ever since. Okay, that's enough. I'm stopping the music to say that's bullshit. Pit bulls are pets. They are animals. Just like any other animal, they can be trained. And if they are trained to be evil or if they are trained to attack people, that is the fault of their owner. Pit bulls are not bad animals animals they are not bad dogs they should not be reviled as bad dogs yes dogs are scary in some way shape or form but most of the dogs that i've seen including pit bulls are fucking adorable and they get a bad rap because they're trainers they're they're their owners teach them to be that way don't blame the pit bull blame the owner that's it the flesh of her neck tightened as it squeezed with pinchers. Look over there, Trey said. There's another one. Looks like a Rottweiler. On the other side of the parking lot, another massive hound had stepped out of the shadows and into the light. This one watched them in eerie silence, too. That looks like my cousin's dog, she said. He has a Rotty named Kilo. He's sweet. He doesn't look so sweet to me. Where did these mutts come from? They don't have collars, see? She saw. She didn't like it at all. Her cousin's dog would never be running loose and collarless. She didn't know who these hounds belonged to. She screwed the cap on the wine bottle. We better get in the car, Trey. I was about to say that. Move slowly. We don't want to agitate them. They cautiously slid off the hood of the car. As if acting under the command of a single malevolent mind, the hound stepped forward. Low growls rumbled from her chest. The dogs were about 20 feet away. It would only take seconds for the canine to close the gap. Shanice grabbed the neck of the bottle and held it like a club, wine sloshing around inside. Move slowly, Trey said. He sidled along the car to the door. Keep your eye on him. They'll think you're afraid if you look away. Shanice wanted to tell him that she doubted it would matter whether she met the dog's gazes or not. She was terrified and was sure the dogs could smell her fear like sour sweat. She touched the door handle. The dog snarled and charged. Shanice screamed and ripped open the door, taking her eyes off the hound behind her, but able to hear his feet scrambling across the pavement at a furious rate. Coming fast. God, she had to move. Get in the car. Fast, fast, fast. Trey screamed. Ah! 
She was halfway in the car, and Trey had gotten the driver's side door open, but the pit bull had clamped his teeth on his leg. It was dragging him away, pulling him across the parking lot, his glasses falling off his face, his hands scrabbling for a hole but finding nothing but smooth concrete. Go, Shanice! Go! Trey shouted between garbled screams. A thunderous roar behind her. She whirled, and the Rottweiler tackled her, knocking her out of the car and onto the ground. She shrieked. The dog's sharp teeth tore into her shoulder. Her vision blurred with tears, and she remembered the bottle in her hand. She swung it at the dog's head and connected with a crack. Glass exploded. Wine sprang everywhere, but the dog squealed and staggered away. Weeping, she crawled into the car. She shut both doors, locked them. Thank God, the key was in the ignition. A cold pain consumed her wounded shoulder. Her blouse was wet with blood, and she tasted blood on her lips, too. She had bitten her tongue. Oh, Trey, she said thickly. The pit bull had dragged Trey to the corner of the parking lot. The dog stood on his chest, deadly jaws only inches away from his face. A man draped in dark clothing stepped into the light. Looming above Trey, he rested his hand on the canine's head. What the hell? Had this guy commanded the dogs to attack them? What was going on? The man looked in her direction. The pit bull leapt off Trey and bounded towards her. The Rottweiler, having recovered from the blow with the bottle, charged the car too. Shanice gunned the engine. The car started with a throaty growl. She slammed into reverse, tires wailing. The dogs jumped onto the hood. Snapping and barking, they mashed their snouts against the windshield as though to tear inside. Screaming, Shanice wrestled the steering wheel sideways, aimed the car towards the road. She mashed the accelerator. The vehicle sprang forward with a jolt that rattled her vertebrae. The dogs bounded off the hood. She bounced across the curb and veered onto the road. Hot tears blinded her. The numbing pain that had begun in her shoulder spread like a ravenous cancer throughout her body. Rabies. The damn dog probably had rabies. Or some other terrible disease. She had to get to the hospital. Oh, Trey, I'm so sorry, sweetie. I'm sorry I couldn't save you. I hope nothing bad happens to you. I hope you get away. Nigga, please! The dog had a foot on his chest. The man was standing over the dog, patting the dog who still had his foot on Trey's chest. I don't think he got away. Where the fuck was he going to get away to? And it only took two dogs to fuck y'all up? Not the whole pack? Just two? Okay, cool. Just check. I mean, they would have fucked me up too. Oh, no. I, 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 that's reason number nine why I don't sit on top of the hood of the car to listen to music. I will sit inside the car with my wife and listen to music, but I ain't getting out that motherfucking car. Not at night. Not in Mississippi. Fuck the dogs. The clan. And I ain't talking about Wu-Tang either. She had forgotten her cell phone at home. They got cell phones? 
I'm sorry. I just I I just thought with everybody talking about the caller ID beside the machine and Star 69 and all that, I didn't think they had fucking cell phones. I thought everybody had in-house phones. What the fuck? Okay. <sighs> she had forgotten her cell phone at home and would have to call the police when she reached the hospital. But a sickening sense of foreboding made her worry that calling the cops would be useless. Trey would be gone, she feared, as it swallowed by the very night that she had used to love. In the candlelit basement, Kyle placed the young man's unconscious body at the foot of his father's bed. You've done well, Diallo said. He sat up eagerly. Did you enjoy the hunt? A woman escaped, Kyle said. She saw me. She will tell others. It doesn't matter. You planted a command in the chief's mind to ignore us, and he will obey for a while yet. It is good that one of our hounds bit the woman. How did you know a dog attacked her? I didn't tell you. I see through their eyes, Diallo said. As the infection spreads to the woman, she will become one of the Valdue. It will not take long. He clapped Kyle's arm. You made me proud, my prince. I assumed I was incompetent, Kyle said, but if I pleased you, that would be sufficient. You're my flesh. Could I be displeased with my own flesh? I would be insane. I can't wait to say that to my son. You are my flesh. You're my flesh. That just sounds so much worse than saying you're my son for some reason. You are my flesh. Flesh of my flesh, blood of my blood. You were bound to me by the laws of physics. Kyle smiled awkwardly. It was strange and wonderful to receive his father's praise. His father never tired of complimenting him, coaching him, fathering him. Mother had been so terribly wrong about Diallo. His father plunged his teeth into the human's carotid artery. Kyle's tongue tickled. He hoped that his father would invite him to share the blood. But he did not. Father drained the human's blood and threw the corpse to the floor. I should not be selfish, Kyle thought. My father needs to feed far more urgently than I do. If I want to feed on a human, I should capture one for myself. The alien thought visited his mind, uninvited. He examined the idea. Rather than being revolted, he found the prospect quite pleasing. Why not hunt for his own prey? Who would stop him? His father surely would not. Father would encourage him to hunt. Mother's teachings came to mind. Only barbaric vampires hunt human prey. Such vampires don't know any better. They do not understand that we're the most civilized race on earth. We are not animals. We're a sophisticated, complex species who must learn to peacefully coexist with mankind. But he had hunted for his father, violating mother's vampire code, and he had enjoyed it intensely. He had not felt like a degenerate. He'd felt like a conqueror. What harm was there in hunting for himself? As Kyle pondered his course of action, Diallo climbed off the bed. He extended his long arms to the low ceiling. My strength is returning, he said. Soon, I will be healthy and ready to begin our mission. 
But Kyle did not absorb Diallo's words. He was consumed by his own thoughts. Father, Kyle said, I think I'm going out again. Are you? Diallo said. But I've already fed. I will not need to feed again until tomorrow. This isn't for you, Kyle said in an unsteady voice. And then he added more firmly. This is for me. He spun and left the basement. Watching him leave, Diallo smiled. In the cramped living room of a trailer home, Kyle stood over his prey. A woman he had found outdoors sitting on the trailer steps, smoking a cigarette. A sharp blow to her temple had knocked her unconscious. Wearing a greenhouse robe, the woman was middle-aged, slightly overweight, and lived alone. Kyle had laid her body across a sagging couch. He knelt before her. Her skin and clothes reeked of cigarette smoke, but the warm flesh of her neck was smooth, and her pulse throbbed in a hypnotic rhythm. He parted the robe, fully exposing her throat. His hands shook. Across the room, a breeze stirred the flimsy curtains. An enormous, dark-feathered bird had perched on the window ledge. A raven. The bird glared at Kyle with disdainful eyes. I know who you are, he said. Hello, mother. The raven cawed. One of Mother's talents was her ability to utilize avian creatures as watchers. He should have anticipated that she would be spying on him. How long had she been monitoring him and his father? Only barbaric vampires hunt human prey. You can't stop me, he said. You stopped me my whole life, but not anymore, Mother. He turned away and sank his fangs deep into the woman's jugular vein. Hot blood spurted into his mouth. He closed his eyes, his body quaking. A moan escaped him. That moan spiraled into a croon of ecstasy. The raven watched for a while, then flew away into the night. Sunday morning, Chief Jackson went to the hospital to check on Shanice Stevens. He wanted to question her about last night, if she was awake. The head nurse on duty was Ruby Bennett. Doc Bennett's wife. She came around the nurse's station to speak to him before he entered the girl's room. There's been no change in her condition, Chief, Ruby said. She's sleeping. Jackson sighed heavily. I'll just look in on her for a hot minute then. Five minutes, Ruby said. Jackson hated hospitals. They reminded him, painfully, of his late wife. She had spent the last few months of her life suffering in a Memphis hospital. He had visited her daily, powerless to do anything to help her, forced to watch her waste away into the grave. As he removed his hat and entered the room, his mouth grew dry. Shanice Stevens lay on the bed, swaddled within sheets. Her mother sat on a bedside chair, her eyes red and puffy. Jackson had seen the mother several hours ago, when he was first summoned to the hospital, and the woman still wore the same clothes. Damn shame. There was nothing worse in the world than watching your child suffer. Hello, Miss Stevens. Jackson settled into another chair. How's the girl doing? Miss Stevens was a slim, attractive lady, a savvy businesswoman who sold real estate and never had a hair out of place. 
But today, her hair was like a wild plant. And when she looked at Jackson, she blinked, confused. I'm the chief, Jackson said, helpfully. Her eyes sharpened. Chief, have you found out who's responsible for this? The dog that mauled my baby should be decapitated, and the owner should be jailed. What are you going to do about it? I'm working on the case, ma'am. Jackson's lips tightened into a firm line. It was frustrating. The young lady had driven to the hospital last night, bleeding profusely from a dog bite. By the time the staff rushed her into the emergency room, she was unconscious. She had awakened for only brief periods since. As far as Jackson knew, the diagnosis was rabies, or something like it. He'd called Chester County's animal services, but they hadn't been able to locate the dog that had attacked her, which kept the vet from running rabies tests. The girl had said a Rottweiler had bitten her, and a number of folks in town owned that breed, and not all of them had bothered to register their pets with the city. It was like finding the proverbial needle in a haystack. Miss Stevens confirmed that the girl and her boyfriend had been out last night. They had not found the boy. He had vanished. Shanice had driven her boyfriend's car to the hospital. That fact chipped away at Jackson's initial suspicion of foul play. Intuition told Jackson that the woman had been running from something. Something from which she had barely escaped with her life and that her boyfriend had not been so lucky. But who's responsible? A dog? It seemed ridiculous that one dog could maul two adults, though there have probably been similar cases of such things. Jackson had never seen such an incident in his time as a cop. He had no leads. He hoped the girl woke up so she could give him a clue. The girl's face was like a wax mask, her lips pale and chapped. She was caramel-skinned and quite pretty. Jackson recalled that she had won a recent town beauty pageant. But she was only a distant echo of her healthy self. The girl's eyes fluttered open. She blinked. Her lips parted. Miss Stevens shot out of the chair. Mama's here, baby. She tenderly touched her daughter's face. You're going to be okay. Jackson pressed a button to summon the nurse. Within seconds... Ruby hurried into the room. Girl's waking up, Jackson said. Shanice mumbled something inaudible. What did she say? Jackson said. Miss Stevens shook her head. I, I don't know. The dogs, Shanice whispered. Something about how the girl spoke the words, as if she hinted at a deeper meaning, rendered Jackson speechless. An icy chill fell over him. What's wrong with me, he thought. She didn't say anything that should scare me. The man. The dogs, she said. Perspiration rolled into Jackson's eyes. He snapped out his handkerchief and blotted the sweat. What is she talking about, Miss Stevens said. The man. The dogs. Girls babbling. Gotta be delirious, Jackson said. His voice trembled. You might be right, Chief, Ruby said. Please leave now. She's not in a condition to handle any questions. I'm calling a doctor. Jackson didn't argue with her. He didn't want to hear another word out of the girl's mouth. Her words terrified him, and he could not put his finger on why. He hurried out of the hospital. In the parking lot, he jumped into his cruiser. 
I don't know a damn thing about what she said, he said aloud. Don't know nothing about it at all. But why did he feel like he was lying to himself? Franklin knocked on David's door. Are you ready for our cave expedition, my friend? Franklin said. It was noon. Franklin was dressed like a man going on an African safari. He wore tall leather boots with thick soles, khakis, a matching shirt, and a wide-brimmed hat. He carried a brown leather bag over his shoulder. You look a lot more prepared than I do. David looked down at his Timberlands, jeans, and t-shirt. You'll do, Franklin said. We only need to pick up Naya. Then we can go, David said. He grabbed his duffel bag. It was a typical sweltering Mississippi summer day with the temperature in the mid-90s. David was glad that he had thought to pack a few bottles of cold water. I must tell you, Franklin said, getting in the Pathfinder, there have been further, possibly related developments since last night. David put the SUV in gear, switched on the air conditioner, and rolled down the street. What happened? Ruby works at the local hospital a couple days a week. She's the head nurse. She called me this morning about a young lady who had been mauled by a Rottweiler. Damn, that's terrible. Quite. The woman drove herself to the hospital late last night. Evidently, she had been with her boyfriend, who was vanished, by the way. She drove to the medical center in his car and collapsed shortly after the staff took her inside. The young lady was unconscious until this morning, when Chief Jackson visited to question her. Ruby was bedside when the woman awoke and muttered about seeing a man and dogs. Ruby suspects the chief has some knowledge of what she said because he was visibly disturbed. Unfortunately, the girl is lapsed into sleep again and cannot be roused. A man and dogs, David said. I don't get it. I called the police station and spoke to Jackson, Franklin said. He denied that the woman said anything of importance. He was agitated and abrupt with me. I must say, such behavior is out of character for Jackson. He's ordinarily a cool customer. I remember thinking the same thing when he visited me after I moved here. Seemed to be a laid-back guy. Anything that upsets the chief is worth investigating, Franklin said. Being an indefatigable researcher, I made some calls of various resources. I learned that a young woman was reported missing two days ago. She was babysitting for a family when she disappeared. No trace of her has been found. Two disappearances in two days, David said. The woman's boyfriend and the babysitter. In a town this small, that has to be pretty damn rare. It's unprecedented here, Franklin said. Include Junior's unearthly experience at the cave and the strange happenings that you've seen? Everything has to be connected, David said. Precisely. But how? That, my friend, Franklin said, is why we're going to the cave. To discover answers to our questions. One of the things that I've noticed in reading this book again, like I said, I adore this book. I, I really do. I love it deeply. Um, is the absence of fathers. Like, it's, it's obvious. Like, it's throughout the book. But it is what what I have learned in real life, what I've seen in real life, is that when a child 
grows up without a father. And I'm not trying to make this a treatise on single parenting or anything like that. But when a child grows up without their father or without their mother, it goes either way. When a child grows up without one of their significant others in their lives and that person shows back up in their life. I have noticed in my lifetime and in my walk that the child tends to pick up on their bad habits first. And the reason why they pick up on their bad habits first is because that parent who was away never had the parent. And so they never learned boundaries. They never learned how to actually be a parent. They're just somebody with somebody who's looking up at them and they don't know how to really react. So instead of acting as a parent would, they act more like a big brother or a big sister or a friend. And the child comes back worse for wear when they're with their other parent, resenting their other parent because they don't have that same freedom that the parent who isn't a parent offered them. The parent who is forced to take on the brunt of the activity of this child, of taking care of this child, is set in their ways of how parenting has to be for their child. And so they're usually not going to move from that path. But that other parent, the parent who gets to run wild and free, and so they're relaxed and graceful and witty and funny and all that kind of stuff, and will give you like $10 and all that kind of stuff, and makes you think that the world can be as easy as they make it seem. They are a figment. They're a figment of your imagination. They are not there. When they are asked to actually sit down and be a part of this world, they will vanish more often than not. When they are asked to support more than what they are doing, which is just popping up when they want to, they are more likely than not to not be able. Diallo has been away from him. He didn't even know he had a son. All he knew was 168 years of rage while he was in a pit. Dreaming of revenge. And he wakes up and his son is looking him in his eyes, which I can tell you as a father, I can tell you as a parent, it's really fucking off-putting when you wake up and your kid is looking at you like, just staring at you in the eyes. At least, as far as I remember, none of our kids ever hit us off with the I threw up. Just stand there staring at you, waiting for you to say something. But they would say shit like, I peed the bed. What the fuck you gonna do in my bed? You better change. In here all pissy. I taught you how to take a shower. Go. Get. Oh, pissy ass. I know you five. Oh, pissy ass. Still, don't be trying to climb in my bed and wet the bed. That's happened too many times. Got stains all up in my bed that I had to buy a new mattress because we let kids sleep in our bed and then they piss. And then try and blame one of us. It wasn't me. Nigga, please. Anyhow, you cannot be a suitable parent without the desire to parent. You cannot just be a friend to your child. There has to be a balance. And parents who have not walked that road of parenting, they've just been an absentee. It takes them a while to get to that point. They want to be considered as the cool parent. They want to be considered as the child's friend. And while you can be friendly with your child, definitely, like you should be your child's most ardent supporter. There are balances. There are levels. You know what I'm saying? Hold up. My wife is here. Baby, you got any thoughts?
she wasn't paying attention, y'all. She missed that whole part. It was deep, though. She wasn't listening. It's okay. I still love her, though. 916-633-1537. Ratchet at gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. I was talking about how when parents aren't in their child's life, when the child finally gets to see that parent for a fleeting moment, however long it may be, they come back to the parent that's been in their life the whole time, worse for wear. Like with different habits that have to be unlearned and different ideologies that have to be broken down. Because the parent that they get to see for those few moments or for that one day or whatever is usually the one who's more happy-go-lucky because they've never had the, the actual need to be a parent. So they don't know how to treat this kid, so they treat them like they're a friend or like they're a little brother or a little sister instead of actually knowing how to contain this relationship. And so the kid comes back home and they're like, the way that you treat me isn't the way that they treat me. And that's why most kids, when they finally run into that other parent, the first thing they say, well, maybe not the first thing they say, but the thing they say after a while is, I want to go live with them. Because this parent isn't controlling me the way that you're controlling me. They're not trying to, they're letting me live my life. And then, if you actually let them go live with that other parent, then they see the other side of letting them live their life. These parents don't know how to parent. They are not engaged in their lives in any way, shape, or form. Usually, they are only that way because they are literally selfish about how they act. They do things that benefit them, which is why more often than not, they're an absentee parent in the first place. They do things that benefit them. And in some strange way, it trickles down and benefits the kid in the short term. But in the long term, it'll fuck the kid up. And the kids don't know how to come back and tell you they made a mistake. Remember that movie, Boys in the Hood, where... um. Trey ended up staying with Furious, like at the beginning, when they when Furious made him rake the yard and shit. Remember what Furious's house looked like? Like it was all nasty and shit, and there was like the toilet and sink were just filthy, and there was a fucking weight bench in the living room instead of a goddamn couch. That is a parent who didn't have to parent. That is a parent who was kept away from his child for a long time, and so he parented selfishly. Now, because the movie was built up to denigrate black women and to lift up black men, he was able to come around and become a good father because he had sense and he had talents and he had wisdom of the blackness. But let's be honest. He wasn't prepped either. And most kids who are put in that situation are living in that situation where, Dad, I'm hungry. Well, what you going to eat? I don't know. What are we eating? You want McDonald's? Yeah. The next day you want McDonald's? Yeah. The next week you still want McDonald's? Can you cook me something? I can cook cereal. What kind of cereal you want? I got honey nut Cheerios. Can I have like spaghetti or something? I, I don't. We can go to your grandma's house. I, they can take care of you. 
Matter of fact, I'm going to drop you off anyway because I got to go make a run real quick. That's the shit that I've seen, not just as a kid, but also as an adult dealing with kids who have other parents who pop back up. And I'm sorry I got on this long ass. No, I'm not. It's my goddamn show. So what's going to happen is that every single time that Kyle says Diallo is animalistic or something like that, his dad, who literally doesn't give a fuck about his well-being, will say, my son, this is the way of kings. We was kings. You are my prince. You must put beside all that woman stuff that your mom taught you and be a man like me and Kyle who's never had a man in his life that was his father his mom always had a, a associates and friends and whatnot but they weren't his daddy his dad would tell him set this aside and he'd be like okay which is why now he's completely cast aside everything that his mom taught him which was literally the way it should be his mom was the mother of vampires she knows the way it should be she knows the right path and Kyle is being swayed by a nigga that he just met but it's always one to know. You can donate to the show at uh, patreon.com slash single simulcast. Um, you can also donate at buymeacoffee.com slash sscast. And uh, on good pods, uh, you can donate at the tip jar. Um, you can leave a review on Podchaser and then copy that and paste it into Apple Podcasts and then copy that and then paste it into Good Pods. Uh, that'll get us in three places. Yeah. Thank y'all so much for listening. I do greatly appreciate it. Y'all holler at me on Twitter. I'll holler back. But for real, y'all be good. I'm holler at you later. Peace. and outro to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this feat. This is Single Simulcast. Don't know my name,